our thoughts influence our reality, but we have to recognize that we are not these individual siloed people. It's a complete delusion to think that we have a separate individual self and that that separate self is disconnected from everyone else. Our thoughts influence our reality, but our, our actions and how those actions co-create our web of reality that we're in together is what our reality becomes. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Justin Michael Williams, an author, speaker, and musician who works at the intersection of social justice, mindfulness, and personal growth. Justin has become a pioneering voice of color for the new healing movement, and his mission is to make sure that all people of all backgrounds have access to the information they need to change their lives. Together, we discuss the science of transformation, what it means to combat forces of oppression in a healthy way, identity labels, and how they function for good and for bad within the activist framework, what it means to go beyond anti-racism, his current take on the human potential movement, and more. It's a great conversation that I can't wait to share with you. But first, a little shout out to the Esalen store. Did you know that each purchase in our online store goes directly back to Esalen's programs and to the land? Go to shop.esalen.org and embark on a personal treasure hunt for highly curated objects that will support your well-being and spiritual discovery. Now here's my conversation with Justin Michael Williams. So Justin, we did an interview last summer while you were at Esalen. This was a few months after the police killing of George Floyd when America was kind of having a reckoning with race. And some of the stuff we talked about was white privilege, how it functions, virtue signaling, which you actually said you're a fan of in some cases. Um, <laughs> a fan would be a strong word, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, yes. you, you tolerated it. Yes, and, yes. And I appreciate it. <laughs> it can be useful in some ways. Yeah. So where has your teaching led you in this year and what are you focusing on now? Yeah, it's been a really like, it's been a really fascinating year, you know, I think for so many of us in more ways than we could even want <laughs> to be, I think, you know, just personally and collectively. And for me, it's been really interesting kind of on the heels of the conversation that we had around race and after George Floyd's murder and, and everything happening. I've been really in this question of understanding that there's a difference between conversations about things and conversations that change things. Mm -hmm. And conversations about things are not bad. So I wanna be really careful that like people are not saying that I'm saying having conversations about stuff is not good. No, it's important to have conversations about things. But I think it's also really important to know the difference in the kind of conversation we're in. If we're in a conversation about something versus a conversation that changes something, there are certain things that might need to be included or excluded from those conversations to accomplish the goal that we're trying to accomplish. And so one of the big things that happened to me that was just this massive unfolding in the work that I've been doing is the conversation about not just talking about race, talking about racism, but what would it take to actually end racism? Like, What would it take to actually and fully eradicate this from our society. And it's interesting because I don't see us having that conversation enough. And the reason why is because I know it sounds like this massive, huge thing to do, but really look at the incredible things that humanity has done in short, short periods of time, really short periods of time. So many of the things that we interact with on a daily basis, just like having your phone in your pocket, right? 
the fact that we even still call it a phone is silly because it's really so much more than that, you know? And look at what's happened in the last 20 years in terms of technology and connection and space exploration and, you know, medical advances and all these things that we've done. So why is it that racism is this thing that we've decided collectively probably isn't ever gonna end in our lifetime? And if that's the decision that we've made subconsciously or consciously, this is gonna be a lifelong fight and you have to be doing anti-racism work for the rest of your life, otherwise you're never... I'm like, why are we setting that up as the context to win in? Because for me, I don't wanna be doing this shit for the rest of my life. Like, I really don't, you know? And I hope that we can make massive strides in this lifetime. So I think where, Sam, where it led me to was I wrote this article called Ending Racism, How to Change the World in One Generation, that kind of went viral and caught a lot of buzz and attention. And that article then led me to continuing to ask the question to say, what would it take for us to actually end it? Given that even the concept of race, you know, I'll be very clear for people, like obviously part of the human condition, I guess we can call it, like humans, what we do is we create in-groups and out-groups. We've done that forever. We're gonna to continue to do that. There's my family, there's your family, there's my religion, there's your religion, there's this, there's that. It's a piece of the human condition, but the fact that we create in-groups and out-groups based on the color of skin is actually a relatively new phenomenon. It's only in the last couple hundred years. Like the word race didn't even exist in this context a couple hundred years ago. Now in our lifetime, it feels like the ocean we swim in, but if this is a concept that we have created in modern day times, why is this not a something that we can actually end systemically, interpersonally, and beyond, you know? So yeah, and people ask me, why am I so hopeful? Why do I think that's possible as a black man, as a black queer man? It's because I'm, I have seen it end inside of my own family, mm -hmm. inside of my own DNA. I'm mixed race, so my mom's Persian and Middle Eastern. Um, my dad is black. My mom is adopted, so this is the part to follow. You, follow. Even though my mom is, Ital is Persian Middle Eastern, she's adopted into an Italian Catholic family that literally came to the US from Sicily on a boat. Mm -hmm. And the family had so much racism at first when my mom wanted to marry my dad, who was black. And what's so fascinating is Italians weren't even considered white back then, yeah. which is so right. wild, right? So they had all this racism and uh, it disintegrated. I watched it disintegrate in my family. And I would say with a whole heart that racism, if it is there, it is virtually invisible in our family. And, and no, invisible is not the right word because racism is often can be invisible, but it would be really hard even for somebody who is an anti-racism teacher to find racism in our family. And that happened because of one main thing. One of the big things in the spiritual community that we often lean on is oneness right and i talk about this in the article oneness and even somebody listening is probably thinking i know justin's right like why can't we all just be one right it's not about oneness like yes we can check off check that off your box like scientifically sure we're all one there's one human race we all come from the same stardust yes check got that okay <laughs> that's real and we do not all experience life on this planet the same and Really, if we're being spiritual about it, you know, why do we even say that the universe came into existence to differentiate itself so it can experience itself? And so I don't think that oneness is actually the greatest virtue we should be aiming towards. I think it is intimacy. 
vulnerability, proximity, connection. And you can't be intimate, vulnerable, proximate to, intimate with something you're one with. You can't. There needs to be some separation. So like what the virtue is, is yes, knowing and honoring that we have differences, but knowing that we're stronger because of those differences and being willing to come together in the sake of the greater human potential. You know, so anyway, that was a long-winded answer to what I've been up to. Working on the next book about it, working on, you know, I put out a program, the Liberation Experience, you know, about it, which is an online program. We're doing a program at Esalen in September uh, 2022, September, I'm sorry, September 2021, um, called uh, Ending Racism Together, Liberation for All, that's happening in September. And uh, I would have never imagined this last year would have spawned so much work, you know, so... That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I want to kind of follow up on this and talk to you about the science of transformation. Yeah. Like, how do your thoughts around this, the science of transformation influence your thoughts around activism and social justice and combating forces of oppression in a positive manner? Yeah. So this one's really simple to me. Um, there, although the studies and the research on things like social justice and activism and gender equality and race and this and that. Overall, it's a new field, right? This is the first decade or two where there's been like college campuses devoted to these kind of topics or people who can take their masters, their PhD in, in you know, these kind of topics. But what's not new is the scientific evidence-based study of change and transformation, right. particularly around brain science, neuroscience, psychoeducation, psychology, like this has been around for so long. And what we know, something that has been proven again and again in a multidisciplinary way, is that if you approach somebody with shame, blame, guilt, or hostility, I don't give a shit how much you meditate how many times you've been to Esalen, how spiritual you are, how much you pray. Biologically, it shuts down the centers of the brain that are responsible for empathy, mm. learning, growth, and change. Mm. It shuts it down. And so if, again, we're saying, is this what is the point of our conversation? Are we having a conversation about something? Are we having a conversation to change something? What is the point of us, quote unquote, calling somebody out? Are we calling them out just to be heard? Are we calling them out because we want something to change? This is what I mean, you know what I mean? And so in the calling out to be heard, say whatever the hell you want. If that's your goal, I just need to be heard, go for it, right? If the conversation is to help the person change or to, in your hope that things are gonna be different, then the way we have that conversation, scientifically, evidence-based has to be different. We can't come with shame and blame and guilt because the person cannot hear you. Just like you can't, right? And people think they're so evolved or, you know, so many people in, in, the so, in our social justice circles think that people are just supposed to be so evolved that you can come to them with anger and blame and guilt and all this rage and that they're supposed to just be able to sit back and listen. And people are learning to do that, but I'm in some ways, but it's not the most effective way to get people to change. We know that. So that's what the science of transformation, I think, has to do and so how can a big piece of my work is how can we use what we know about change the science of change compassion vulnerability connection not saying i'm like 
putting roses all over the movement. I'm not saying it's gonna be this beautiful cakewalk the whole time. There still can be accountability. There still can be all of those things. But how do we bring these elements of change to our movement for social justice? And that's the, the question that most of my work is answering these days. Yeah, yeah, amazing. What about my friends and family members and coworkers and the people who think differently than me? Or they're doing, they're, they're racist and they don't realize it, or they're this and they don't realize it, or they're not using the pronouns and I don't know what to say, and every time I try to talk to them, it just doesn't end well, and this and that, right? So how do we have that conversation? There are some elements at, at play that are really important, but before you even have the conversation, you have to get really real with yourself. What's your goal? Is the goal to try to get them to change, or is the goal to be right. And someone said this quote to me, oh my gosh, who was it? Uh, oh, Sara Franti, it's Michael Franti's wife. I interviewed her on The Kingdom on, a, on my podcast. And she said her biggest lesson in her life is do you wanna be right or do you wanna be close? Amazing. Do you wanna be right or do you wanna be close? And so to just really decide that for yourself and then I, the way that I distinguish this in a lot of my work is we know and we've heard about call-out culture, so calling people out. And then we've heard now that people are saying, oh, I want to call them in. And so calling in, for people who don't know this, the calling out is saying something that somebody did, quote-unquote, wrong in public. Calling in is saying what they did wrong in private. And none of those things work if we're not calling them forward. And that is a piece of work that I'm starting to insert kind of into the space is calling forward and what it really means to call someone forward, not out or in. And calling forward involves creating a space of connection. And what calling forward also requires is an understanding of what you're calling them into. And this is what is missing to me in the anti-racism movement right now. Anti-racism says what we're against what we're fighting against. It doesn't say what we're moving toward. Uh -huh. And so if you don't know what we're moving toward, you can't call people forward into anything. Mm. All you can say is what they're doing wrong. And when you're asking people to give up, whether these things that we're asking them to give up, we believe they should be giving them up, rightfully so. When we're asking people to give up their family traditions, their power, their money, their way they think around politics, the way they've lived their entire life in some cases. We're asking them to give that up. For what greater good are we aiming toward? What are we inviting them into? And I find that when people are invited into a bigger vision, a vision that inspires them to know that there can be something greater, greater for them and everyone involved, it's much easier to leave something when you know that what you're stepping into is something greater and better. And so calling forward in, involves some of these elements and can still involve accountability in all these pieces, but it's just a different orientation around the same topic. Yes. Do you feel like there's a space for, for fun within this movement, like a space for joy? No, yeah, man, like there, there is. And that's one of the things is like, the work of around anti-racism and social justice, look, there's different strokes for different folks, right? There's some people who come at this with like a really heavy-handed approach and some people respond to that well. Just like some people when they're being coached in a sport or something respond really well to like the mean coach who's like cussing at you and saying like, you bitch, if you can come on, you know what I mean? Like this kind of, I've never responded to that well. Like I respond to cheerleading, right? Like I respond to positive affirmations like I respond to 
um, a different kind of nudging forward. And I know that many people do. And so, yeah, I, I think that this work actually can be really fun when you are orienting yourself towards what are we walking toward? not just what are we moving away from or fighting against. Mm -hmm. And and there can be so much joy um, in the process of liberation. Yeah. Yeah. In my workshops, we like do a lot of jumping around and dancing and talking and, and people feel a great sense of love and connection, you yeah. know, in the workshops that yeah. we do. So, yeah. yeah. During our conversation last year, we realized that the book, The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle had been important for both of us. One of the aspects of his work that I found revelatory was his writing around the ego and pain associated with identification. I'll read a passage. The greatest miracle is the experiencing of your essential self as prior to any words, thoughts, mental labels, and images. For this to happen, you need to disentangle your sense of I, of beingness, from all the things it has become mixed up with, that is to say, identified with. As the child grows up, the original I thought attracts other thoughts to itself. It becomes identified with a gender, possessions, the sense-perceived body, a nationality, race, religion, profession. The I identifies with roles, mother, father, husband, wife, and so on. Most people are still completely identified with the incessant stream of mind, of compulsive thinking. It could almost be looked upon as an entity that has taken possession of them. So... I bring this concept to you because it makes me think a little bit about the way we use identity to place ourselves within the context of the activist movement. An example might be, I'm differently abled. That's my main identity. Or with the lens of intersectionality, I'm differently abled. I'm second generation American. I'm trans. I'm Republican. I'm a Yankee fan. That's just an example off the top of my head. You get what I'm trying to say. What are your thoughts around identity labels and how they function within the world today? Are they useful or a hindrance or it depends? Okay, so I'm going to give you the both and answer, but with, with some finessing here. Because I think there's, there's one thing that's an issue at hand that I think a lot of us face and deal with in the quote-unquote labels that we wear and this is a big thing just if we can take this individually and collectively like individually i think one of the big shadows of the personal growth world of the last kind of two decades really is this focus on like find your one purpose and make money doing what you love and find the one thing that you love and you're gonna be you know and like then all these people have like these passions and these things that they love to do that they then don't do anymore because they feel like if they're not making money doing the thing, then they're not worthy of doing the thing. Or if they have to pick the one thing, then what happens to the other things? And it just creates this whole, I, I, I think this find your purpose thing has caused more harm than it's caused good. You know, personally, as I've been kind of observing the last couple decades in this, in this world. And um, particularly in the, you know, the personal growth, human potential movement. And as it relates to this topic, the reason I brought that up is when we, in any case, and I think this is what Eckhart's really getting to, define ourselves as a noun, we are completely limiting who it is that we really are, what it is that we really are. Because what he's getting to is that 
we are a verb. We are a doing of energy that is being done in active, real, now moment time through us in every instance, right? And so when we define ourselves as a noun, I am a singer, I am an activist, I am an author, I am a speaker. I'm just saying some of mine, right? I am also a brother, I'm also a son, I'm also an uncle, I'm also, it's so many things that I, that I am. And so if I just try to pick one of those things or even two of those things, it's castrating all these parts of myself. So that system doesn't work. You are not, your purpose is not your job title, nor your beingness is not defined by any of the other nouns or adjectives that you add on to who you are. Or, so it's really the noun and then the adjectives that we add to that noun, right? Mm-hmm. Who you are and what you do is a verb. What is the energy that you are expressing and being and bringing into the world? And I love like this when I think of the, so I geek out a little bit. So people should know about me, like I geek out on etymology a little bit. (laughs) And so like when we look at the word purpose and uh, the, it comes from pour poser, which I think is old French or maybe it's Latin. I can't remember which one it is. And it means to put forth. So it's like, the question is, what are we putting forth into the world through all of the nouns that we are? Through, like through singing, through music, through being able-bodied or not, through being, you know, whatever version of an activist or social justice warrior, what are you putting forth through those nouns? So that's my, you know, the one side of this is that the nouns don't matter. Now, at the same time, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Do you and, get what I'm saying? And I and I wanted to mention too in there. I don't. I'm not sure if Eckhart Tolle ever would have come up with this conception if he wasn't white, cisgender, cisgender, able yeah, all the things. Part of the sort of the the normative identity yeah. that people are being reflected against. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't know that I'll make an assumption. I don't know how much in that time Eckhart had ever had to reflect on his identity. We do not have to discard our individual nature and the things that we've experienced in this human condition and in in our humanness to also be connected to source energy. Mm. And I actually don't think so, even though A New Earth, hands down, it's a book that changed my life completely. I am actually not one of these like, everything about the ego is bad kind of person. Mm. I'm really not. Mm. I, I think it's a little toxic in some ways because, you know, we have these one beliefs where we say, all things are created by the divine, except for the ego. It, it, so you know what I mean? Like it reminds me of when people, it's, it's spiritual bypassing to me in a certain way. When we say like all, you know, we want to welcome only our positive emotions and not sadness or anger or rage because these are a low vibration. What, like why are we limiting the divine just to like a certain state that we've defined as comfortable or good? So my question, obviously it all comes in balance, but the ego to me, and I learned this beautifully from Camille Maureen and Lauren Roche, who are teachers of mine, like the ego is I am. Mm-hmm. The ego is the I am. Uh-huh. You need some I am, I think. I don't think it's bad to have some I am. I don't think it's bad to have a healthy, strong ego if and when you can also know that you're connected into something greater and that's not all that you are. Yeah. And so when people are like, 
my ego, my ego, my ego. I'm like, chill, bro. Like, it's going to be okay. You can have a little ego. Just don't let your ego be causing harm. Esalen is defined by its commitment to the notion of human potential. You spoke a bit about the concept of going beyond anti-racism. How does that sentiment apply to the notion of achieving one's human potential, if at all? This is one of the, it's been the biggest question for the last year for me, particularly as it relates to Esalen, you know? To me, I think we've done a really, really, really good job on expanding our horizons of understanding what it means to be human on an individual level. And when you say we've done a good job, you mean the human potential movement and Esalen, which is a massive contributor to the movement, right? But I'll say the human potential movement in general. And we have gotten so many good bestseller books and workshops and researchers and teachers and departments that's you know uc berkeley has the greater good science center you know we have so much that's happened around the individual me and what it means to expand my potential and possibility inside of this skin suit and the individual me here i think the next frontier of the human potential movement is what it means to expand our potential for everyone to be fully in their potential of being human and what it means to expand our capacity as individuals to impact that movement for everyone to have the potential to live in their full humanity and and humanness. And so what a lot of people say often is, oh, well, me doing my individual work like impacts the collective. No, it don't. Not automatically. (laughs) It does not automatically. Like, it's like such a spiritual bypass thing. Like, oh, me doing this work on myself is just impacting everyone. What? Like, where? (laughs) You know? Like, please point, please give me some examples, you know? Like, sure, maybe you're a little bit kinder to your husband at home. Great. You know, all these things are good. But I'm talking like, there's much more that we can do here. And so what is, and this is what a lot of my work is aiming to do. It's, I don't think we need to move from me to we. And this is, um, Dan Siegel has become a really good friend of mine. And he has this word that it's not from me to we, it's muy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Me plus we equals muy, you know? And it's it's really a beautiful way to, it's a silly word, muy. Right, muy, is it French? Yeah, that's great. It's It's a really silly word, but it actually is pretty insightful because if we leave the me, and Dan says this so beautiful, if we leave the me to become the we, we get resentful of the we because we've lost ourselves. If we go so fully into the me that we don't think about the we, which is what I think the human potential movement has done mostly, then we're missing like such a massive point of all of this. And we're isolating ourselves and we're forgetting about the collective. And so in the same way that like, you know, I'll give an example here, like, One of the laws of the universe that, you know, people like Eckhart and many of these incredible people who I look up to, so I'm not in any way bad-mouthing these people in any way. Um, I just hope that what I say is like additive, you know, to the conversation, is we have heard these things like your thoughts create your reality, right? Okay, so I am teaching in a group of African-American women who have each lost a child to gun violence. One woman in particular whose daughter 
was the one daughter, the good daughter, the one who was making it. She was nine years old, sitting inside their living room, doing her homework. And a stray bullet comes through the window and hits the daughter in the head and kills her. And you're expecting me to tell the, that woman that her thoughts created that? Hell no. I dare you. Do you know what I mean? An African-American man who gets pulled over for a routine traffic stop and gets shot by the police and handcuffed and pulled out. His thoughts created that. You know, I, it's just, you know, trans women who are just being themselves and out pumping gas and get completely killed and drug on the back of a truck. Your thoughts created that? No. And so I think that our thoughts influence our reality, but we have to recognize that we are not these individual siloed people mm. in this one. In, it's a complete delusion to think that we have a separate individual self and that that separate self is disconnected from everyone else. Mm. Our thoughts influence our reality, but our, act, our, our actions and how those actions co-create our web of reality that we're in together is what our reality becomes mm. that we all have to live inside of. And so this is, you know, my thoughts of what's next in the human potential movement and hopefully where I'm able to make some contributions. In times of turmoil and change, how do you navigate your way out of resistance and into ecstasy? Lucia Haran lineage holder of Gabrielle Roth's Five Rhythms Movement Practice and Somatic Meditation will share the science and skills needed to support balance, ease, and joy. Celebrate being alive in the wild, natural beauty of Esalen. Sign up at esalen.org workshops. Justin, you are a new member of the Board of Trustees at Esalen. Can you talk to me about some of the reasons why you wanted to accept the invitation to be part of the Esalen leadership? Yeah. So, first of all, it is a huge honor. You know, I am uh, the first African American person on the board, um, the youngest person on the board. Um, so I'm grateful that I get to bring much needed and and appreciated, you know, amongst the board perspective uh, to the table, which is really amazing for a place that matters to me so much. And I'll tell you the funny story about it when when I first got asked, and then started kind of getting interviewed by the board and talking to the different members and interviewing them and having conversations of what it really means to be on the board of trustees of Esalen. You know, it's a small group, um, smaller than people might imagine. What happened was I was in conversations and one of the board members had asked me, why is Esalen important to you? And I said, Esalen is the most important place to me on the entire planet. And it was funny because I don't know that I had thought about that as consciously before, but I really felt into it. And the reason I thought of that, it was interesting because it was, you know, the fires had happened and all these things had gone down. And I've been coming here for about a decade, multiple times a year, you know, for about a decade. And I remember thinking, if this place burns down, it is going to be such a massive hole in my life that I have no idea where else I could fill, fill that hole. Like I would, I would actually be in some sort of mourning if Esalen was not here. And the reason I felt that so strongly is because when the person from the board was asking me this question, my mom had just sold our family home that had been in our family from my mom grew up in that house. It then became my, where I grew up. So it's been for generations in our house. And I didn't care. I was like, 
I'm not attached to things in that way, you know? I was like, oh, this is our last time in the house, but great, you know, <laughs> onward, like, cool, like, movement, good, this old house, like, you know, good thing we're getting rid of it and grateful for all the moments, and, and I didn't care as much, and I was like, wow, it's such a trip that my house that I grew up in my whole life, I'm, I'm letting go of with ease, and the idea of Esalen not being here, like, breaks my heart in two. And so when I felt that deeply and how important this place has been to me and how transformational this place has been to me personally and how the work that I've been able to do here has literally, not figuratively, has literally empowered me to impact not thousands, but like tens of thousands of people's lives from the work that I've had the chance to do here. It The question just for me became, what other board would I be on but this? Like this is, if there was gonna be a board that I was gonna sit on, this would be the one. You know, and at first it was it was not never a question for me of uh, would I be a good fit on the board or this or that because um, I feel very like loved and held and taken care of and and massive respect for everybody on the board. But the question was, is this the right thing for me to be doing at this moment in my age and in my life and in my career? Um, based on like I'm tour- touring and you know out on the road a bunch and pretty busy. And once I came to this conclusion though, I said, you know what, if, if I'm giving my time to anything right now, this is one of the most important things that I can do. So here we are. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really happy that you're, that you're on the board. Thank you. Yeah. Me too. I appreciate you putting your time and energy into it. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's awesome. So when, when Esalen is its best self, yeah. how do you envision it functioning? And I know you're not speaking for like, this is the grand plan that the, that the board oh, is no. doing. I'm, I'm yeah. asking you personally. Yeah. Me personally. Yeah, I'm not allowed to talk on behalf of the board. I'll tell you what um, one of my, I don't want to say goals, but just a piece of my vision is. And what's so beautiful is it's already happening. So I remember like eight or nine years ago, maybe eight years ago when I first came here, I was walking in one night and uh, I was in the in the lodge and the piano was open, but nobody was playing it. And people were kind of standing around. And I had this thought and I said, ah, like one day I'm gonna bring just a whole bunch of like mixed race, like people of color here to this space. And like this piano is gonna be the freaking gospel choir moment of the like sing-along moment happening, you know, in the room. And, you know, a part of my vision for, um, and what I'm excited that Esalen is really leaning into is really truly not just in like advertising and imagery but really what does it mean to make this place accessible to more people mm-hmm. and whether that is how to do it virtually while still respecting the essence of this place and the property or how to adjust pricing which just happened to make it more accessible to people you know pricing is lower than it's been in years you know right now here and um, it's been a massive opening. I have a workshop happening this weekend as that we're recording, and a woman sent me a voice note, and she was crying. And she said, Justin, I have been wanting to come to Esalen for 15 years. And she said, she was like, well, before you were, you know, whatever. I've been wanting to come here for so long, for 15 years, and I've never been able to come because I'm a woman who's, I'm not a young, a spring chicken, and she said, and I am not, not only am I not willing to, but I'm not able to come and sleep on the floor in a sleeping bag. And, but that was the only way that I could afford to come to Esalen. And because of the new pricing and accessibility that just happened, I just signed up for your workshop. And I've been wanting to come for 15 years. And it just made me cry. 
Because, you know, I'm like, look, look at what's happening. And the staff, when people come here, we'll see is diversified and, and the training that's happening here. And so when Esalen, to me, is functioning at its best, it will continue doing more of what we're doing now to help bring more accessibility to to all to experience the magic of this place. You have an online offering you call The Kingdom. You did a recent teaching about claiming your shadow. You say that your shadow is not your trauma. Talk to me a little bit about the power of claiming your shadow. Yeah, of course. So I have something called The Kingdom. Um, I tell people, it's like imagine if church, Super Soul Sunday, and a TED Talk had a baby. <laughs> so that's The Kingdom. And the idea came to me at Esalen. I was at Esalen, and I was thinking, gosh, why is it that we don't have not church, but like something where we can come together and learn lessons that are intersectional across multi different religions and traditions and spirituality and beliefs. That's God optional, but also all different gods welcome, you know? And, um, and so I had this idea for the kingdom. And so every Sunday now for the last 54 weeks, um, we have had a gathering that's grown massively. We wow. started with like 100 people, and now we're at like 1,500 people come online virtually. It's free. There's no donation bucket that gets passed. It's just a free event for people to come for an hour, live music, and and really great teachings that sometimes um, uh, come from me and, and me studying other other big concepts out in the world and, and delivering them, and sometimes having really cool special guests. Um, and what we've done recently is people can find the Kingdom podcast actually online. So if you, you can either watch the replays, come live, or listen to the recordings on the podcast. So we, and for people who are looking, if you type the Kingdom, Justin Michael Williams, that's how you'll find the podcast most easily or anywhere online. So this shadow episode is one of my favorites, and I think it's really um, fun to talk about here at Esalen where shadow work and you know has been such a big part of the experience here. And the word shadow and shadow work, I know it's not new, but I think it's becoming like repopularized again in a new way. Like we're seeing it all on Instagram and your shadow and this and that. And from all the training and work that I've done, like I've been pretty deep in shadow work training uh, for the last seven years or so mm -hmm. um, with a teacher named Robert Masters, Robert Augustus Masters. and several other teachers as well. And there's a lot of confusion, I think, for people around what is shadow. Because a lot of people will sometimes equate shadow, will say, well, it's all the bad things that have happened in my life. It's all my trauma. It's all the emotions that I don't want to feel. And specifically this concept around trauma, which you asked. And what happens sometimes is when I'm traveling around the world or now on Zoom, people will come to me and say, Justin, I don't have any big trauma. I really don't. And they're not lying to me. You know, they're not being blind. They're not bypassing it. They're like, my parents are together. They were always really loving. They maybe got in like one or two big arguments, but they weren't in like earth shattering or traumatizing for me in, in, in a big way. Um, I'm in a loving relationship. I have a good job. I grew up with money. I went to a really good school. My life is like pretty good, but I'm still unhappy. Okay. Or, but I still feel like there's more in my life. I still feel like there's a longing for something, whether it's deeper intimacy, more of their creativity and art and passion, a business idea they have they haven't unlocked. They're wanting to have a family. There's, there's still a longing, right? And so if shadow equaled trauma, then what that would mean is all these people who have had no big trauma should be the most enlightened people on the planet. And obviously we know that's not true, right? So what I want people to know 
is that your shadow not only includes, yes, your trauma and your pain and the things that have happened to you, but your trauma, I mean, your shadow also includes your greatest gifts and holds all of your greatest gifts. And what is the thing that we want to really point to in the shadow? And this is what people really miss all the time. We don't wanna just point to the trauma. We don't just wanna point to the situation that happened when you were younger. While that's good, what we have to find in the shadow to really break through is the conditioning. The conditioning that gets set inside of you from what happens to you. Mm -hmm. The conditioning is what's actually creating the circumstance that's still impacting your life now, not the circumstance itself. And so the example that I give to people to make it really helpful is, yeah, while trauma can condition us, there are so many things that are not traumatic at all that can, can condition us. So let's say, for example, um, and this, this example will show you how something that's not traumatic can condition us and how that conditioning can impact our life and hold our greatest gifts back. And so let's say you grew up in a family where you're the youngest person in the family, a five, okay? You have a single mom, parents got divorced, but still loving, no big trauma around, but you have a single mom, you're the youngest one in the family, and every time you have a desire or a need or something that you need, it can never really fully be met. You always have to just take care of everything on your own. And what gets told to you is, you should be grateful for what you have. You should be so grateful for what you have. Look how much we have. You should be grateful for what you have. You don't want more. And what you really want is because you're the youngest one, you're getting all the hand-me-down clothes. You're getting all the hand-me-down toys. You just want some things of your own, right? But you should be grateful for what you have. And so the conditioning gets set. And so what can happen is here you are as an adult wanting to potentially leave your job that you have because the job is fine. It pays you well. You don't hate it, but it's not satisfying you. And you know that you have this business pursuit or this creative idea. You feel like there's more. But because your conditioning has told you, you should be grateful for what you have. You should stay where you are. Wanting more is bad. What's pushed into the shadows is your desire, your authentic desire, your, your permission to let yourself dream and want more for your life gets pushed into the shadows because of the conditioning that was set. And so, yeah, we can go to the inner child and go back to the situation with your mom and try to heal it in that. But what we have to find is not just the circumstance, we have to actually find the conditioning, the pattern, the belief system that was put in place. And that is what kind of holds everything into the shadow. Also from the kingdom, you did an episode about the difference between colonized creativity and decolonized creativity. I'm so interested to hear you talk about this. Creativity, I really like to break it down into two areas, which you've already said. We have two, two types of creativity. We have colonized creativity and decolonized creativity. So colonized creativity is creativity that focuses on a product or an output. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Decolonized creativity wow. focuses on the process or the experience. Now, it sounds very simple, but they're very different in terms of how we approach them. And what happens to a lot of people is they have a creative pursuit, and I want to be very clear here, I'm not equating creative to artistic, 
because a lot of people, when they're listening to this, they're thinking that I'm talking about just being an artist or a singer or a dancer or a painter or a poet. Sure, that's included, but but we are all creating our life. We're all using our creative energy to decide on the kind of intimate relationships that we want to have. We're on the how we're going to raise our family. On what are you going to eat? You know, we're we're using our creative faculty all all, all the time, and so when we are specifically in a creative process of any kind, oftentimes we stifle our experience and ability to experience creativity because we're focused on the product and the output. And we think if this process does not produce an output that can be posted on social media, praised by other people, or even be good by any stretch of the imagination, then it's not worth doing. And I think that, and actually studies have shown, that people who incorporate creativity into their life just for the sake of the process, just for the sake of having the experience, actually live more fulfilled lives. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of studies on this. You can look up at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley's website. Huh. And so what is just important for me, I think, to say about this is, is as follows. Oftentimes, people start trying to squeeze money out of something that was just supposed to be for fun. Because, like we started, the personal growth and human potential industry has told us if this thing that you're doing is fun you should be able to make money doing it mm -hmm. and it's so toxic and what it happens is you take these things that are genuine passions that people truly enjoy doing just for the sake of doing them and you immediately poach them pick them up and this is what colonization does and put it somewhere else in a different category so you're poaching this creative process and you're putting it in a different category which says oh now I have to produce something for this to be worthwhile for my time and so what I ask people to do is just check yourself and check what are some of the things that I enjoy doing in my life just because I enjoy them mm. and can you just let that be okay do you have to turn it into your next big entrepreneurial idea and sometimes the answer to that is yes yeah but if you do, then you have to consciously choose and understand that you are putting this in a different category of creativity because now you're expected to produce something from it and it changes the flavor and the energy of it altogether. This happened for me with music, right? Like I have engaged in music for so long and as soon as I put out an album, every song I write now, even if I try to pretend I'm not thinking about it, uh -huh. is oh, is this, oh, I really, I sing this hook or this this chorus because it feels so authentic to me and it's so loving. And then I have to go back and go, oh, well, do the words sound right? Or is it catchy enough? Or is it going to be repeatable? Oh, shoot, this song that I wrote is five minutes. Like, songs now are only three minutes. Like, I have to change it. And so I have to even get real with myself and I'll set these boundaries for myself and say, okay, whatever I write right now is just for the process. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. Yeah, because of course I'm still thinking. Oh, maybe this could be a famous song. And what about when you, you, you writing this book that you're working on? How can you make sure, even though it is, as you say, colonized creativity? How can yeah. you make sure that the process is generative? And yeah, I'm not going to say that I even want to because I want the process to be generative and open and free. But I also, again, conversations about things versus conversations that change things. Like uh -huh. I have an aim with this book. Yeah, like I have a goal. I have something that I'm trying to make sure the message gets across in a certain way to certain people. So there are certain things that I'll that I will not say in the book to make sure or that I will say to make sure that the product that I'm producing 
hits the target that I'm wanting to hit and has the aim that I want to hit. But what I do allow myself to do, I'll tell you, is um, <laughs> I call these like the throwaway pages or I put them in the vault. Uh-huh. I will just write and just get it all out and go, okay, now I got that out. What do I want to actually say yeah. to people? Uh-huh. What do, maybe it's stuff right. that I pull from this and maybe I don't pull from any of it at all. Interesting. So yeah. yeah. This book is, is a different process for me because I feel like I'm really adding and contributing something to the conversation. Mm. And so while there's a lot that I can say, I'm looking at how can this body of work in this book be something that is additive, not just regurgitating or re-explaining stuff that you can get from all these other books and places you know, in the world. And so in some ways, I'll have to summarize some things, but um, it's been a little bit of a different process. Yeah. What would you say is your superpower as a leader? What's something that you're really proud of that you do in the space of leading and teaching? I'll say this. I consider myself a translator. And the reason why I say that is, you know, I have been from being 18 years old, really 19, like the young black dude who was always on a property or in a room full of people who were much older than me and white. And taking in and learning from these experiences and being able to pass them to a community who may not be able to understand in that same context. And so for me, the ability to break things down in a way that can be simple and most importantly, actionable for people Mm -hmm. is I guess I will call my superpower, you know, because it, I, this is, I say this over and over to people. Transformation is actually really simple. We just make it really complicated so we don't have to do the transforming part. And so I love to like really go to the simplicity of what are the steps and the actions that you need to take to actually start seeing transformation in your life. So far, there's been... 40 or 50,000 people around the world who I've had the gift of being able to work with, you know, virtually or sometimes in person. And um, I'm just really grateful, you know, to be able to show up and use that superpower, as you called it, in some ways. Is there a leader or a teacher out there who is exciting to you at this moment, who offers some promise for healing and creating our best world? Yes, there is a woman who is, I love when I get really excited about somebody. And I'm really excited about this woman named Jazz. She is an African-American woman and she goes by the Moon Mother on Instagram and places that you can look her up. And her work and everything that she says, it is really exciting me in ways. The perspective that she's coming from is giving me perspectives that I haven't even thought from around you know, a lot of these concepts of the law of attraction and money and this and that and the way she's I've never heard anybody even say some of the things that she says mm. and when I hear her talk my my soul goes yes mm. so I feel really excited about her so everybody can look up um, the moon mother and her name is Jazz and you'll find a lot of magic there with mm. her that's yeah. great thank you yeah, yeah she's awesome um Anyway, I, I would start like try to paraphrase some of her stuff, but I will not do that because she'll she'll do it better than me. So you guys can just go look her up. Okay. Yeah. So Justin, from our conversation last year, I came to understand that in some pretty significant ways, you're 
kind of a high-powered, high-achieving individual. <laughs> you, you do stuff, you know, you get stuff done. You're, you're clearly passionate, driven about the causes you support. I want to hear about the kind of self-care that you do and you have been doing over the past year to ensure that you don't burn out and you can continue to teach and lead. So I will tell people, people who, who know this, I'm an Enneagram 3, so overachieving and working a lot is uh, my gift and curse at the same time. And so the constant work for me, like in my inner work, is um, really, truly honoring and taking care of this vessel, my vessel, to make sure that it can show up and continue to expand and serve. And so my commitment, it's actually a commitment I made a couple days ago um, on the full moon, is it was the 23rd of July, full moon, and I... uh, made a commitment that for the next 40 days, I'm going to be in bed by 10.30 every night. Which for me is, it's not like I normally sleep at two in the morning or anything like that, but I will typically be working until 10, sometimes a little later, checking emails and then I get in bed and I'm swiping through things and looking on social media and the next thing I know it's 11.30 and I'm in bed. And I'm an early, I like to be an early riser. And so what I know is when I don't get enough sleep, everything breaks down. Like I start getting sick, I'm not as patient, I'm not as creative, I'm not as good of a leader, you know, all the things. So it kind of the center point of of the wheel for me is my rest. And so I've committed for the next 40 days to make sure that I'm in bed at 10.30, which means if I wake up at six, then I'm getting a decent amount of sleep every night. So I'll let you know how that goes. But there's been, there's, it's been a really big commitment for me over the last year or so. And um, I am taking better care of myself than I ever have. Um, and sometimes we forget, <laughs> you know? So right now it's sleep. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I'll throw in one last thing. Um, because this is like, I always say that if there's one thing that I hope people take from me, um, that it would be this. And this is kind of underlined so much of my work. I don't remember if we talked about this on the last podcast or not, but I'll just say it again if so. It's that fear and faith are the same exact thing. They are the same thing, fear and faith. And in this way, this is what I mean by I like to really break these teachings down and these concepts to the, to the, to the root. So when you look at fear and faith, people will often look at these things as two big different things, especially in the world right now. We're talking about there's so much fear and this and that. And And yes, when I'm talking about faith, I'm talking about religious faith, but I'm also talking about the bigger, broader definition of faith, which means the Oxford Dictionary says it's a complete confidence and belief in something or someone. So that can include religion, but can be much greater than that in different ways, expand beyond it. And so fear and faith are the same thing. Well, how, you might ask. When you go to the core, both fear and faith require you to believe in something you can't see and that hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. That is literally it. Mm. P- apply it to any religion, anything, anything in life as small or as big as you want. Fear and faith. Believe in something you can't see and that hasn't happened yet. That's it. And so if we're going to believe in something, which we are, why choose fear? Why not believe in faith? Why not believe that more is possible? Now, I know this sounds 
nice and inspirational and woo-woo, okay? But I wanna really make this practical and I get chills like little teary-eyed when I think of this. Like, this is real because choosing faith is not saying choosing blind faith, but choosing faith means choosing to believe that there are possibilities that are bigger than your circumstances, that there is more possible than what you can directly see around you. That's choosing faith. And the only way that our society has ever moved forward is because some group of people who started out as individuals and then slowly found each other and grew chose to believe in faith. Think of African slaves in the United States of America during slavery. There is not one thing around you that could even potentially cue you to the idea that this could end. Somebody believed. Think of women and women's rights and the rights that women of all over the world, but especially in, in the United States. Think about the LGBTQIA movement. 15 years ago, you couldn't get married anywhere in the United States. Mm. Nowhere, you know? Now look, and so you look around you, it's not possible to get married until someone chooses to say, yes, we can. And not only yes, we can, but we will. And so when we believe in faith, it's not about whatever the vision we have coming true exactly as we see it. It's about who we become in pursuit of the vision, who we become. And so as I look towards this image of us having faith in us ending racism, whether racism, how you define that can be up to different people, but it's about who we're gonna become as a collective in the pursuit of that happening versus who we become in pursuit of it never happening are two different things, right? So again, you're believing in something you can't see and that hasn't happened yet. You're gonna believe in something either way. Who you become is primarily based on what you believe is possible. And so let's become something greater. Thank you. Justin Michael Williams, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you. <laughs> so good. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you like the show, please subscribe and share our episodes on social media. If you want, email me at voices at esalen.org. I'll write you back. Learn what it means to set yourself and others free with an authentic voice. Justin Michael Williams partners with Pandemic of Love's Shelley Tegelski to show the power of unity across gender, race, age, and sexual orientation. Leave with a greater clarity and a clear course of action to call people forward instead of calling people out. Sign up at esalen.org workshops. And until next time, be well.